Starting in chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, and so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and, and his guest, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And as his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he, um, a great crowd, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and held and healed their sick. Now it was evening, and the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and that day is now over. Send the crowds away to get into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves in here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up up to heaven and said, said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the, over to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who, were, those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way away from the land, beaten up by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they had come into the land of Gennesaret. And when they, the men of that place recognized him, they set around all the region and brought to him all the people who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. 
Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But when you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for his sake, your tradition you have made void, the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, This honors me with your lips, but his heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines and commandments of men. And when he called the people to him and said to him, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father had not planted will be up, will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to them, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew from the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her. He did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent out only to the lost of the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs and fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus, was, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And the crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called to his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Am I unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way? And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed, to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, 
he got into the boat and went to the region of Magnon. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and they to test him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it, is t- it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread, and Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread, but Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves for the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of this leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that they did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elisha, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I will tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosen on the earth shall be lost in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elisha, taking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elisha. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elisha has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so that also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and said, kneeling before him, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from there and here, and it will, be, it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two dracid tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings on earth take toll or a tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourselves. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, knowing that your word is our food. It is spiritual nourishment for our souls. I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit's work and your grace toward us, that you would give us hearts to really know who you are and to really believe who you are and to be surrendered in faith to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here. And this morning, we are discussing full surrender, faith, and the Messiah. Our core truth this morning is this. Um, it is Jesus responds to faith. Jesus responds to faith. And I hope if you've got something to write with, you'll have the opportunity to take notes this morning as we unpack these important chapters together. Jesus is the hero of these chapters. Um, there's a lot of interesting stories that we read, and all of them are true. But the point of all of these stories is for you and I to fall more in love with Jesus. He is wonderful. And over and over and over in the chapters, what we get told is who Jesus is. 
we um, realize that he is filled with love. He is constantly moved by compassion. He is on a mission of restoration. He's restoring people into intimacy with God. He's restoring people into God's image and the security of God's grace. He's restoring people into purpose uh, with God. He is restoring. That's why Matthew writes, is to help us know that he is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to bring you back to God. And over and over in these chapters, what we see once again is that Matthew is pointing our attention to Jesus. But there's something that unites these chapters together, and that is this theme of faith. Because over and over and over, what we realize is that it's the heart of faith that connects us to Jesus. It's the heart of faith and a life of surrender that moves us into relationship with him and allows us to experience all that he is and all that he's come to do. And the core truth this morning is this, and that is that Jesus responds to faith. This morning, what I want to do is to connect these chapters together for you in a way that maybe you haven't seen them before by teaching you six principles of faith that we see given to us by God's Word in these chapters. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to go to six. Y'all good with that? And we're going to start with number one, all right? Number one. Faith principle one is this. Faith gives God what you have and trust Him with it. If you want to understand faith, then you need to understand this. To have faith looks like you surrender to God what you have. And then, after surrendering, you trust him with it. I love these two stories. And by the way, there are two separate accounts. Many people get confused about this in the Bible. There are not um, just one account of the feeding of the thousands. There's actually two separate accounts. And by reading these chapters uh, all at once, you begin to see that there are two distinct times that Jesus uh, is with the crowds. And what ends up happening? The crowds get hungry, right? And as they get hungry... um, Word gets out, hey, we're hungry. And the disciples around Jesus, what are they doing? It's kind of a tricky situation for them, right? And it turns out to be a little bit embarrassing because what happens is they realize, uh, oh no, we ain't got nothing to feed these people. And they're hungry. And what they should have known about Jesus, they've been around them so long by this point that they should have known that Jesus could do something about it. But instead of looking to what Jesus can do, what do they do? They start looking at what they can do. And they begin to look around, and they start assessing what, what they have, taking an inventory of the stuff that is in their possession, and they go, good gracious, all we got is a stinking kid here. And he's only got a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish. And they end up coming to Jesus. You look at that there in the chapter 14, verse 16 or excuse me, uh, verse 15, and they come to Jesus and they go, hey, uh, we are uh, kind of out in the middle of nowhere here, and it looks like we don't really have enough to feed the people. And the day is getting kind of late. So can you maybe send them home for the night, tell them to come back tomorrow? Right? That's essentially what's happening. And isn't this 
so often like our own situation today, where we get into a situation of need and we look around and the only thing we're looking at is, good gracious, it doesn't feel like the right time. Good gracious, this doesn't seem like the right place. Good gracious, I'm looking at the inventory of what I have in my possession, and it sure doesn't seem to add up to be enough. And yet, what we know is that Jesus, not the disciples, but it was Jesus who had the power to do something about it. Faith does not rest on our ability, friends. Jesus, faith rests on Jesus' ability. What does Jesus do? Jesus says, uh, no, actually, I don't, want, I, I, I don't want you to send the crowds away. I don't want you to dismiss this as something that I can't handle. Instead, I want you to bring me what you have. And the disciples went and they gathered up what they had, verse 17. They bring back what they have. And then, amazingly, Jesus says, verse 18, bring them here to me. What Jesus invites us to do is to surrender to him what we have and to trust him with it. Jesus says, you bring me what you have, but recognize this is not about your ability. This is about mine. What I want is for you to get to a point that you surrender yourself, your resources, your all to me, because this is not about you. This is about me. Bring what you have, and then trust me with it. Watch what I will do. And he orders them, it says there in verse 19, to sit down on the grass. And the other uh, situation where he feeds the thousands is similar. And he takes what they have surrendered, and he breaks it, and he blesses it. And then he gives it back to them for him to work as they distribute it to the masses. It's amazing. When we are in situations where we feel like we're in trouble, where literally, y'all know those times where it feels like, good gracious, I just need to close up shop and go home. This thing looks hopeless. Y'all ever been there, right? And I'm not talking about the night before the test when you didn't do your job studying, okay? But all of us have been there. I am talking about that too, okay? I'm just making a joke. Some of you students are looking really excited right now <laughs> these hopeless situations. Um, but we all have been in these situations where it just feels like, good gracious, I, this is not the time, this is not the place. I don't know how this would even be possible. And Jesus is not asking you to try to sit around and figure out how. He's asking you to bring to him your whole self and all that you have and to surrender it before him. And as you surrender it before him, God will take it. He breaks, he blesses, and then he distributes, and he provides for your need. And not just for your need, he provides for others through his provision to you. The disciples are not manufacturers of this bread that they're distributing. They're just distributors of it. They are taking what God has given and allowing it to be used to meet not only their needs, but others' needs. In these situations, when we feel like all is lost, and we start to make excuses, and we start to doubt, what Jesus is saying is, I want you to have faith. Come to me. 
Surrender what you have. Let me bless and multiply. Amen? Faith principle number two. Faith principle number two is this, and that is that faith focuses on Jesus, not itself or its circumstances. Faith focuses on Jesus, not itself and not its circumstances. In verses 22 to 33 of chapter 14, we have this story of Jesus once again putting the disciples into a boat, but this time they're going to encounter a storm. Now, he tested their faith before. We studied that in Matthew when Jesus was actually there in the boat with them. Now, he's put them in a boat and he's not in the boat, and he sent them out into the sea. He's growing and maturing their faith, and I'm telling you, if you walk with Jesus, he will grow and mature your faith too, and a lot of the tests in life that you will experience will be opportunities for you to know him more. But Jesus sends them out in a boat. And some of us have heard this story. They get, it says in verse 25 and to uh, verse 24, the fourth watch of the night, and the, the boat is long way away. So he's put them in a situation where they literally have nothing to cling to. <laughs> No hope in themselves. He's a, they're a long way from land, and the wind is beating up against them. And you've got to wonder, what are, they're freaking out, right? And some of these situations that we are in in our lives, y'all ever been through a, a time where you're just literally freaking out, and you feel like you're being tested, and you don't know if in the middle of the test that you're going to be able to survive? What Jesus wants us to know is that we can trust him. He wants us to have faith in the middle of situations where it feels like everything is coming against us. In fact, what he says, what we see here in this passage is in verse 25, how, what are the reasons we can have faith, right? Well, number one, he, he sees us. He sees our situation. We learned that from this story. Jesus sees you in your time of trouble. He knows what you're going through. Number two, he feels a burden for you. And number three, he comes to you. It says there in verse 25, Jesus came to them. He is El Roi. He's the God who sees. And not only does he see, he moves to you with his power and his compassion. And interestingly, I think it's amazing, verse 26 says the disciples saw him. What was he doing? Walking on the sea. Y'all ever wonder, why does Jesus walk on the water? Is this just a cutesy thing to do? Does he just want to show out? Why is he walking on the water? Here's why. Because isn't it the water that they're afraid of? And by walking on the water, is not Jesus saying, I am sovereign over your greatest fears? The thing that you think is going to bring you under is actually the very means by which I want to show you my sovereign power. Why is he walking on the water? Because the water is what they're afraid of. And Jesus has come to show us he is more powerful than even our greatest fear. He is sovereign over circumstance. And they think, oh my goodness, who is this? They can't imagine it would be Jesus. And he says to them, 
take heart. Do not be afraid. It is me. Do not fear. I, have, I see you. I know you. I care about you. I move toward you. I am powerful over your greatest fears. Do not fear, friend. Have faith. Faith focuses on Jesus. Look at me, not circumstance. Look at me, not even faith itself. Just look at Jesus. And as he gets to them, Peter, I love Peter. Don't you love Peter? He's just always, so he's an eager beaver. And he's always stumbling over himself in ways. But, but what a heart. Oh, I pray that we would have more hearts like Peter's heart. He is eager to know Jesus. He is eager to experience more of what Jesus has to give. And Peter says, if it is you, Lord, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and begins even by keeping his focus on Jesus to overcome. Not by the power of Peter, not because Peter's proud of himself and his faith, but no, because Peter was fixed upon Jesus. And Jesus is looking at, I mean, Peter's looking at Jesus' power to overcome, and as Peter is one with Jesus, Peter overcomes by Jesus' power as he trusts him. And he begins to walk on the water. But look at what happens in verse 30. But when Peter takes his focus off of Jesus, what happens? He begins to be afraid. As he looks towards circumstance and away from Jesus, as he begins to think about his own doubt, rather than just keeping his focus on Jesus, he begins to be afraid. And he begins to sink in the waters, crying out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus takes his hand but speaks to him, O you of little faith, why, why, why did you doubt? In the swirling circumstances of life, in these places where we feel all is lost or we feel hopeless or we feel tested, we feel afraid. Faith focuses on Jesus. Not itself, not its circumstances. Faith focuses on Jesus. How do we focus on Jesus? Knowing that he sees us. Knowing that he feels for us. He cares. He's compassionate. Knowing that he moves toward us. Knowing that he's sovereign over circumstance. Knowing that he has the power to sustain us. Faith focuses on Jesus. This is why Hebrews Chapter 12 says to us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What he's saying is, if you know Jesus to be your Savior, your Messiah, if you know him, to be the one who sees you, cares for you, moves towards you, has power over all, then friends, as you live this life of faith, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't keep your eyes on circumstance. Don't even trust your faith itself. Faith really only has power because of the one it's connected to. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of Jesus. Focus on Jesus. He is able. Amen? Number three, 
Principle number three, faith is evidenced in a right heart. Faith is evidenced in a right heart. There's two interesting sections of Scripture in chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, and then he comes back to the Pharisees and Sadducees in chapter 16, verses 1 to 12. In these two passages of Scripture, what we see is, in chapter 15, verse 1, the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus, and they're basically poking Jesus, aren't they? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why don't they wash their hands when they eat? And in chapter 16, they come demanding signs from Jesus. They're poking at him in really big ways. They're attacking him over basically the fact that disciples weren't washing their hands according to their traditions in the right way. God had given his heart that there be purity in his presence, but what had happened was the direct command of God that was meant for the heart had begun to become a tradition of man, and layers and layers and layers and layers of interpretations of that basic commandment had been added in to the point that there were so many rules and regulations that people were so stressed out keeping the rules and regulations that they had forgotten the very most important principle of the heart. Don't tell me this doesn't happen today. It does. Some of us have grown up in churches that were legalistic like this, where it was all about the rules and the behavior and not about the heart. Some of us are still struggling in that place today. But what Jesus says to, his, to these people, he answers, verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, how is it that your rules... Your religious performance, your behavior has become more important than the essence of what God desires, which is your heart. How is it that you've gotten to a point that you are consumed with your behavioral ritual and you have neglected the purity of your heart? Jesus wants truth, yes, but he also wants love. Did you know that? He wants truth, and he wants love. Truth without love is hypocrisy. Excuse me, let me say this. I got it wrong. Forgive me. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. And what Jesus says to them, he says in verse 4, 5, 6, don't you know God's command? Don't you know? In verse 7, he calls them hypocrites. And in verse 8, he goes on to quote the prophet Isaiah and say, What was their hypocrisy? The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines of of God the commandments of, of men. In other words, he calls them out and says, look, 
Your behavior looks like it's all in order. You stand in the worship place and you sing the right words out of your mouth, but I see your heart and your heart are far from me. And if you only knew, God has never been concerned as much about your behavior as about your heart. Behavior comes from the heart. And that's why he goes on to teach his disciples as they're confused. He says there in verses 10 and 11 and then explains it down in verses 17 to 20. But he says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Verse 18, whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the what? From the heart. Sin comes from your heart, not from your diet. It's what comes out of you that defiles you, not what goes into you. True faith is evidenced in a right heart. This is why 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then in verse 13, you remember how he ends the passage? So faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. What he's saying is, there is a faith that is not a faith that is acceptable before God. And that kind of faith is a faith that is divorced from a love of God. Faith in God will always be accompanied by love of God. The two go together. The faith that Jesus desires is evidenced in a right heart. What kind of heart? A heart of love for God. Because we know Him, we love Him, and because we love Him, we trust Him. You understand? That's principle number three. Number four. Faith principle number four is this. Faith believes God rewards those who seek Him. Faith believes God rewards those who seek Him. By the way, uh, as you're writing that down, for principle number three, this is why David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Y'all have heard that prayer, right? That is why that prayer is so essential for us to pray. It's because God desires a right heart. Number four, you guys finished writing it down? Oh, there it is. Faith believes God rewards those who seek him. I love that in these chapters what we see is Jesus once again responding to people's needs. He responds to someone who's been possessed, oppressed by demons. He's responding to the sick. He's responding to the paralyzed. He's responding to the hungry. Jesus is responding 
as people come to him and present their needs. But interestingly, in these situations, what we see is great faith. Uh, I told y'all we're going to be looking here first at verses 21 to 31 of chapter 15. I told y'all there's two times in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is astonished at faith. The first one was with the centurion. Do y'all remember that? The Roman soldier earlier in Matthew. And the second is here with this Canaanite woman. She hears, it says, that Jesus is near. In verse 22, it says that she comes to that region and she begins to cry out, Have mercy on me, O Lord. O son of David, my daughter, severely oppressed by a demon. You can imagine her cries as Jesus and his disciples are traveling down the road and she's just crying out, Oh Lord, have mercy! Have mercy! God. Jesus, do you see my daughter? She's completely possessed. I can't even imagine as a parent the desperation that she felt. <laughs> have mercy, Jesus! And apparently, interestingly, it says there in verse 23 that Jesus did not answer her a word. Jesus is not immediately responding to her. But interestingly, his lack of response at her first cries does not cause her to lose faith. It does not cause her to give up. It does not cause her to move to another source of hope. In fact, it says there in verse 23 that his disciples came and they begged him saying, uh, could you please send her away? For she's crying out after us. So what you have is this picture of Jesus not answering a word and she continues, oh Lord, would you have mercy on me? And she's following them, she's following them, and she's following them. She's pressing on them, she's calling out to him to the point that the disciples are going, hey, um, this is a little much. What are you going to do? Verse 24, he answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's a Gentile. He was sent primarily first to the Jews. But she comes and does not let that even stop her faith, stop her hope, stop her persistence. Persistently, she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. He again answers, it's not right. For me to take the children's bread and throw it before dogs. And then she responds once again in verse 27. But yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat at the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Persistence. Persistence of faith. Doesn't this remind you of the widow in Luke chapter 18? The parable of the persistent widow. Have you all heard that story? where she goes to the judge knowing that he is the only one that can answer. And because she knows he's the only one that can answer, she goes and she goes and she goes and she goes. And Jesus says in his parable that because of her relentless knocking, that the judge answers her request. And then he says, in teaching his disciples how to pray and not lose heart, Luke 18 tells us that's the point of the parable. He says, so you, if you know that your good God is even better than this sinful judge, so you ought to not lose heart. Keep going and going and going and going to Jesus because he can and he will respond to those who have faith. Don't lose heart. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And it's not just enough to know he could do it. But you've got to have faith. What is faith? Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who what? Who seek him. What is faith? Faith looks like not only believing that he can do it, but bringing yourself with earnestness, persistence, desire to say, Jesus, would you, would you, would you, would you have mercy? And Jesus taught us to pray like this and not to lose heart. What about you? And the things you at one time felt that God calls you to trust him for, are you still trusting him? Are you like the woman who not only calls out once, but continues to follow and to call and to call and to call and to call despite any and all doubt and opposition because you know that he is the one who can and will answer those who believe. Faith. Principle number four. Faith believes that God rewards those who seek him. Principle number five. Principle number five is this. Faith rests in the person and work of Jesus in his death and resurrection. Faith rests in the person and work of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. In chapter 16, verses 13 to 28, what we see is that as Jesus has been dealing and warning his disciples, be careful, be careful of these religious people. They are just trying to put traditions and commandments of man on you, but they're ignoring your heart. Be careful. I've come for a different purpose. I've come for your hearts. As they get into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, interestingly, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? See, a right confession and understanding of Jesus is essential to salvation. It's not just faith in a higher power. It is faith in the person and work of Jesus. It's not faith in some abstract idea of God. No, it is faith in Jesus as God himself who has come by his love and grace and his work on our behalf to set us right with God now and forever. Faith is always, true faith, saving faith is always directed to the person and the work of Jesus. So what Jesus is doing and probing is he's saying, who do you say that I am? He's not trying to figure out his identity. He's wanting to make sure that his disciples have their hope resting in him and him alone for their security and salvation. Now, Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Philip, not Philip, I'm stumbling all over my words today. Peter replies, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this is not a product of Peter's investigation. This is a product of God's revelation. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, 
Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Salvation is a work of God. And Peter answered correctly. He says, Jesus, I know, I know that you are the Messiah. You are the one who's come to put us right with God. And then what Jesus says to you, verse 18, he says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter. He changes his name from Simon to Peter. And he uses the word Petros. You are Petros. And on this, we don't often get this in English. It says in the Greek, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Petros is a small stone. A Petra is a large rock. So what he's saying is, Peter, I am changing your your whole identity to be a stone, a living stone like we see Peter describe later on. He understands that he's been made new and he's a part of something bigger than himself. And on this Petra, not on Peter, Petra is the confession of Christ. On Jesus Christ, I will build my church. On this confession, I will build my church. And we see this reference in Matthew 21 and Acts 4 and 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 2. Over and over and over, they come back to this foundational understanding that Jesus is the foundation of it all. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, I will conquer death and I will conquer sin and I will conquer Satan and by my work, I will deliver you. You will be set free. And you will have the power in the gospel to unlock. He gives the keys to the kingdom to unlock and open doors. Now, after that, so a right confession is built on his person, but it's also built on his work. Right after this, it says in verse 21, from this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He begins to talk about what he's come to do. We, we hear the first indications of the fact that he's come, not just to live, but he's come to die. And he says he must go to Jerusalem to do what? Suffer many things from elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Now Peter looks and he hears of Jesus and he begins to rebuke him. He says, no way, Jesus. You can't do that. We're not going to lose you like that. We're not going to let that happen to you. And how does Jesus respond? Look at that, verse 23. But get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What is he teaching Peter? He's teaching Peter this, that true faith rests upon the person of Jesus. Yes, you got to know he's Messiah, and you got to put all your trust in him. But secondly, it rests upon his work. you got to know that the only way for Jesus to restore you to God, the only way for all of his promises to be fulfilled in your life is for him to take your place in his suffering, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection from the grave. He's saying, Peter, you don't understand. If I don't take your place and if I am not killed for you, then you will not inherit the promise of God. Because the entire work of God in your heart and your life, the entire restorative work that God has come to do hinges on his grace through my work. 
I am living for you, but I will also die for you. And I will take your place in the grave. And three days later, I will overcome. And it all hinges on me. It doesn't rest on you, Peter. It rests on me. And this work must be complete. You must hear me say, it is finished. So that now and forever, your faith will not rest on your performance, but will rest on mine. This is faith. Faith resting on the person and on the work of Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 to 21. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, what do we live by? We live by faith in the what? The Son of God. This is the confession. His person. We live by faith in His person, the Son of God, and we live by faith in His work who loved me and gave Himself for me. Our faith doesn't rest in our goodness before God. It rests in His grace given freely to us. Our faith doesn't rest in our sufficiency but His, and it all is about His person and His work. Last but not least, as we close this morning, I want to give you this final principle which undergirds and motivates it all. Faith principle number six is this. The real reward of faith is more of Jesus. The real reward of faith is more of Jesus. I love chapter 17, verses 1 to 13, because what we see is that Jesus gives an opportunity for Peter for James and John, three friends incredibly close. These were some of his, these were his most close relationships, his partners and co-laboring in the kingdom. And these three, if you remember, are the three that he chose to be with him in the garden. And he takes them up on a mountain, it says in verse 1. And verse 2, it says that he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This was glory that they had never seen before. Now, let me tell you this. This is not new glory of Jesus. This is glory that has been there all along, but they haven't seen it yet. The whole word transfigured here means that it's a change on the outside that comes from the inside, which means Jesus has always been more glorious than they have ever known. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is glorious. So he's not becoming something new. What's happening is Peter, James, and John are getting to see more of who he already is. There's an opportunity, an invitation to know him more. And it's amazing, it's so amazing that Peter, sweet Peter, verse 4 says, oh, if you'd like to, I could build you a house. We could just stay here. This is amazing. Right? He's so enthralled with the glory of Jesus. And he has Moses and Elijah there helping us to remember that all of the law and all of the prophets point to him. He is the fulfillment, the radiance of the glory of God. And this is what it's all about. This is what faith is all about. Faith is not just about salvation. 
Faith is about intimacy with God. The entire point of all of it is that we can know Him more and more and more. And they can't ever get over this. John, as he writes his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, We beheld His glory. And Peter, when he writes his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They were enthralled by the person, the glory of Jesus, so much that all of them died. James, the first to die, an early death. And John, persecution and Patmos. And Peter suffers and gives his life for Christ. They are enthralled with the glory of Jesus. And their passion, their purpose is, Jesus, I want to know you more. Let's go back to the principle as we close this morning. Faith. The real reward of it is more of Jesus. This is why Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. It's not for purity alone. It's for they will see God. How blessed we are that as we grow more in faith, that we get more of him. As we close this morning, I just want to ask you, as you consider these principles, Do you have faith, real faith? The core truth this morning is that Jesus responds to faith. And what I want to know is, do you have faith? It's not about your faith as much as it's about him, but faith connects you to him. And I want to know this morning, are you willing to to surrender your heart, full surrender, with the song that we're about to sing. Jesus, I want to know you more. I want to grow to be more filled with wonder and amazement and fixation and focus and surrender and trust in who you are. Faith. It's all about Jesus.